Um, all right, so uh, we're in a series in the, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and today is part nine. Um, you know, as we've uh, gotten into this gospel a little bit, I shared a few weeks ago that you, you could break Matthew's gospel into these parts. Uh, there's an introduction, and then there are five what some scholars refer to as books, or five like large sections, and then a conclusion. And, um, and, and that is generally agreed upon by Bible scholars. That, that's how they see Matthew. Wrote, wrote a few chapters of introduction, wrote these five larger sections, and then closed out with a few chapters of conclusion. Where we're at today is the middle of chapter four. And sometimes when Bible scholars break down the book of Matthew, they start the first section of those five sections. They start the first section right here. They, they look at this section as kind of the start of this, this first movement of Matthew. Other scholars wait and they start that section at chapter five, verse one. But honestly, I don't think it really matters because the end of chapter four, from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, it's, it's a pivot. It's, it's a pivot point for Jesus. And Matthew wants us to experience it that way. So either uh, Matthew considered these verses the end of the introduction, or he considered it the start of that first section. Um, but either way, I want us today to just recognize that these verses, the verses we'll look at today and the verses we'll look at next week, they are, they're a pivot. They're a transition. Uh, so we're moving out of the introduction. Uh, Matthew has spent these first chapters um, with incredible intentionality, inviting us into who Jesus is. Started off with the genealogy and gives us all of these Old Testament connections, all of this lineage uh, of Jesus. Chapter 2, he gives us uh, some stuff about Jesus' uh, childhood, uh, and then he keeps working. Chapter 3, we, we get exposed to his, his, um, uh, his baptism and um, uh, in, in some of the, the message that John the Baptist has to share with us. And then we came to chapter 4, and Jesus is in the wilderness. That's where we were at last week. So now, if you read, heard those verses read just a moment ago, maybe you got a little bit of a sense of the transition, of uh, the, the pivot. Um, because there's something that happens that causes Jesus uh, to, to move uh, out of his hometown. And so let's, uh, let's take a look. I know the kids are with us this morning, and so I only have two points. I know it's a miracle, um, but, but it's, it's two points. And uh, let's, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, 12 through 17. And so right off the bat, we find out that John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, is, is arrested. So uh, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He is the forerunner. He, uh, if you went back to chapter 3, you would hear John the Baptist is out in the wilderness, and he's out there preaching loud, and he's preaching hard, and he kind of has like an Old Testament prophet kind of a message. It's like, it's basically, uh, it's, it's kind of gloom and doom. It's pretty heavy, and he's saying, you better get ready because the Messiah is right behind me. And so it's like a message of preparation. He's identifying the rebellion or the sin that was going on in the world and in the nation of Israel. And he is saying, you, you got to get serious because the Messiah uh, is, is right behind me. Uh, other gospel accounts give us a little bit more detail about John's arrest and how that went on. Uh, but Matthew just tells us John, John was arrested. He just gives us that as like a, a data point. And Jesus had heard that John was arrested. And so Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And then verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So Jesus leaves Nazareth, which Nazareth is the town that he was raised in. If you remember, uh, there was quite a scramble off the bat in Jesus' life. 
He is born in Bethlehem, but then he ends up as a refugee in Egypt. And then when they come back, there's a lot of fear about the threat to Jesus' life. And so Joseph and Mary and Jesus end up in Nazareth. And that is where Jesus is raised. Um, A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land. And the guide for our trip, his name was Bart Denbor. Uh, he, he said to us that Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. Capernaum was Jesus' own town. And so it's like Jesus is, is now a, a, an adult male, and he moves to this place, and it, like, it becomes his own place. So he was kind of known as the son of Mary and Joseph when he lived in Nazareth. Now he is moving uh, to, this, to this new location. And you might say, like, why did Jesus move? Um, you know, was it, was it fear over John the Baptist? I mean, like, wh- wh- why does anybody move? I mean, it, you know, jobs, people move for jobs. Uh, that's possible here. It's, it's, it's doubtful, though. Um, you know, people move to Traverse City because of the water. And Nazareth is not on the water. Capernaum is on the water. So may- maybe, maybe that. Uh, people move to Traverse City for the wineries. But I think, you know, it's pretty clear that Jesus wouldn't move for the wineries because, you know, he, he makes his own. And so he doesn't, doesn't need that. So you know, why does Jesus move? Well, Matthew does not really give us any specifics. He doesn't give us any, any details. What he does is what he always loves to do. What, what does Matthew love to do? If you've been around through this series, you know that Matthew loves to look back at the Old Testament and to make connections with what's going on with Jesus to the Old Testament. And he's using this phrase to be fulfilled. He's using it so frequently. He wants all of us to take our eyes and look back at the Old Testament and to remember that this is still part of that story. This is, it's not a new story. This is the unfolding story of God in the world. And so Matthew isn't saying, forget the Old Testament, they were wrong. Forget the Old Testament, that's archaic. Matthew is constantly saying, no, look, reach back there. It has resources for us. It reveals to us the fact that God has been on the move all along, all along the way. And so Matthew does it again here. He connects the dots. He ties Jesus' life and his ministry to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so Matthew sees Jesus' move as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. If you look at verse 15, um, he, he starts to quote uh, a passage from Isaiah. And if you were to read Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9, you, 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 would, you would see um, this, this language or where he's pulling this from. But at the end of verse 14, he says, so that it might be fulfilled. So this Old Testament has something to say. Verse 15, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so Matthew has just started to read his Old Testament with Jesus' glasses on. Because scholars say that there is no reference in the rabbinic materials of Jesus living in the Sea of Galilee. The rabbinic material, when they saw Jesus, when they saw the Old Testament um, uh, stuff about um, the Messiah on, on the sea, they thought it was the Mediterranean Sea. But Matthew reads this, and Matthew's like, see, there you go. He said he'd be on the sea, said he'd be on the water. This is exactly what God said would happen. And he references these two tribes, Zebulon and Naphtali. And these are, are two tribes of Israel. And um, if, you, if you want to take a guess, you know, where the, the, back in the Old Testament, all the tribes, they got allotted certain areas of land. 
And these two tribes, their allotments were way, way up in the north. So since it's spring break, since we have the kids here, we're going to try something, me and Dave Ballard. We are going to try to go to Google Earth and actually orient ourselves a little bit, see if this works. So this is space. And Israel is right in the middle, so go ahead and zoom in there, Dave. So if you don't know where Israel's at, you know, you can see um, Africa here, down here to our left. Zooming in, nation of Israel. Keep on going. And then you'll see uh, a little bit north. This is the, the, I don't know if you can read that or not, but the body of water on, on, on our right is the Dead Sea. And then just kind of to the northeast a little bit is the city of Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is like the heart of Israel. Israel. It's the heart of the Jewish people. It is the, um, the city of peace. It's the city of God. Zion has all of these, all of these uh, nicknames. And like, that's like the, the center. That's where the temple was. That's, where, that's the heart of, of, uh, of Israel. And if you, it's really small, but just south of that is Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. But if we scroll north, and maybe zoom out just a little bit, Dave, and scroll a little bit north there, You'll eventually see um, Nazareth is to the east of the Sea of Galilee, over here just to the left of the mouse, of the hand. I don't know if you can see it out here, but out here is Nazareth right here. That's where Jesus grew up. And then you see at the top on the north side of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. And that's where Jesus moved to. It's about 20 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum. Um, and so when Jesus moves, you know, you would think Messiah, King of the Jews, the, the long-awaited King, the long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited Rescuer, wouldn't he move closer to the heart of things? Wouldn't he move to Jerusalem? But no, he, he moves 20 miles, but he moves 20 miles further away. And now Capernaum is 80 miles from Jerusalem. And in this region, this region of Galilee, where Zebulon and Nephtali had been given their allotments... That it, is, it, is, it is far from Jerusalem in, 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 in first century terms. It is like way up north. It's far from Jerusalem, and it's far in a number of ways. It's far physically, or uh, yeah, physically, it's uh, 80 miles away. Uh, people that lived in Jerusalem were kind of like, yeah, I mean, we've heard of it, but who goes there? Like, that's so far away. You know, it's like, that's, that's, that's the fringe. That's, that's way out there. I mean, this was the outer reach of the allotment that God had given for the promised land. So it's physically far. It's spiritually far. Uh, devout Jews in Jerusalem, they thought the region of Galilee was way too loose with their doctrine. They thought they were you know, kind of uh, uh, compromisers at some level. They were less pure than the devout that lived in Jerusalem. So it was spiritually far away. And then it was politically far away. Uh, there were a lot of uh, rebel rousers that uh, kind of came from that region of things, uh, troublemakers. Uh, devout Jews would see them as rebels or as uh, in, in insurrection, a place of, uh, where, where those kinds of things bubbled up, where rebels came from. So where Jesus ends up is physically far from Jerusalem, spiritually far from Jerusalem, politically far from, from Jerusalem. If you look in verse 15 again, it actually refers to this area as Galilee of the Nations. You say, what is Galilee of the Nations? What does that mean? Well, it would be like saying America is a melting pot. 
It would be like saying America has this incredible dynamic of just cultural diversity and all, all kinds of different um, you know, racial and social dynamics going on. Like that, that's what Isaiah said, that that region, is, is, it kind of has this, this multi-ethnic uh, dynamic that is stirring about it. And if you haven't heard, you know, devout Jews in biblical times were not huge fans of diversity. Um, and so th- th- this is the region. And you know, again, there's no reb- rabbinic um, reference to the Messiah being connected up there. But that's how Matthew read the Old Testament. That, that's, that's the, it, Matthew's like, this is exactly it. Look at Isaiah 8 and 9. Bingo. That explains it. That's why Jesus is where he's at. That's what's going on. And remember, Matthew's primary audience are the Jews. And he wants them and he wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment and the climax of the entire movement and story of the Old Testament. Isaiah points to these lesser-known tribes, Zebulon and Nephtali. And one of the interesting things about those two tribes is that you know, Isaiah is talking at a time where Israel's been through it, man. Israel's at exile. They've had all kinds of trouble. And Isaiah is looking at these, these two tribes, and they're way far away from the center of things. They're out on the fringe. And if you look at the historical movement of, their, uh, of Israel's capture, those two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulon, were two of the first tribes to be taken into captivity. And Isaiah is saying, those two tribes, they were the first taken into captivity, and they're going to be the first to be released from captivity. And that ended up being true. Uh, when, 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 when the nation of Israel was released from Babylon, they, they, were, the first, they, were, um, they were the first to be uh, experiencing freedom. But what Matthew seems to be saying is that Isaiah's prophecy actually has two horizons, there's the first horizon, which is the, the, uh, the situation in 538 BC uh, leading to the, uh, the release of the Jewish people, and that happened. That, that's historical. That, that, that happened. And so in the first century, they would know the nation of Israel had been in exile, and they were released from exile. They could look and say, oh yeah, Zebulon and Nephtali, they were the first to, 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 to get their, their freedom back. That all happened. Matthew says there's a second horizon that the, the region of Zebulon and Nephtali, they're going to also be the first ones to get true freedom, to have the Messiah show up, to have Jesus dwell among them, to have Jesus walking among them. And so Matthew takes Isaiah's prophecy, which had happened, the first horizon had happened, but Matthew adds a layer. And he says there's another kind of freedom that's coming, and it's going to start in this region that everybody thinks of as shady. Everybody thinks of it as fringe. Nothing good happens up there. That, that's not the heart of things. That's, that's, that's the outsiders. And yet, that's where the Messiah shows up. That's where Jesus goes. This is the region on the outskirts, thought of as shady, and yet the Messiah sets up camp there. Isn't that just like Jesus? To show up in the unexpected places, to show up with the unexpected people, not just the devout Jews, but the outsiders, and not just the outsiders of Israel. This is the, Gent- the, the Galilee of the, of the nations. There's all kinds of people groups being represented here. And this is what Jesus, this is where he sets up shop. Pretty incredible. And you say, you know why? Well, to spread light to the nations. That's what Matthew's saying, that Jesus is this light that has dawned. 
And Jesus sets up shop there. His mission is to bring light to the nations. And why do the nations need light? Because the nations are stuck without him. The nations are stuck without him. And so Jesus shows up in verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is the mission of Jesus, to bring light to the nations. Well, what about his message? If you look at verse 17, the last verse of our text today, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. So can you feel the pivot nature of this, the transitionary nature of this? From that time. So here's what happened. John goes to jail. Jesus moves to a new place. And from that time, he begins preaching. John John the Baptist was declaring a message in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus goes public here in chapter 4, verse 17, with the same message. If you you go back to chapter 3, verse 2, you see John the Baptist say the very thing that Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. that's, That's the message that Jesus began preaching throughout the region of Galilee. John the Baptist said it in chapter 3. If you read Mark's gospel, Mark gets to Jesus preaching this message in his first chapter. So Mark, right off the bat, tells us, here's what Jesus came saying. Jesus showed up saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew takes four chapters to have Jesus do this. Um, But they all agree, like, this is the message. This is the message. And Jesus starts preaching. And this call right here is like the summary of the whole message of Jesus. It's a a statement, but it's like the summary of everything that Jesus is about. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Jesus is saying, the kingdom has shown up like it never has before. It's closer and more active than ever before. And I'm the king. And I'm standing right here. Are, are Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? John the Baptist didn't have the full picture, but John the Baptist is saying the same things a chapter earlier. He's saying, guys, the the, the kingdom is on the way. It's at hand. The, the, The king is on the way. Repent. Get ready. Do you know what's happening? Do you know what's coming? And this word repent, we've talked about the word repent a lot of times, but it means to change one's mind. And in the first century culture, that, the way that that word was used is it could be to change your mind towards anything. It could be to change your mind from something good to something bad or to change your mind from something bad to something good. And the Christian teaching comes along and kind of uses this word in one direction. When the Bible talks about repentance, it's talking about changing your mind and from, from trusting in yourself to trusting in, in God. From actually like living in light of your own plans and actually trusting in the God of heaven. And so repent, change your mind, turn yourself away from your own plans and agendas to the agenda of the God of heaven. And then he talks about the kingdom, the rule and reign of God. Now, Matthew has already equated the arrival with Jesus with a light that has dawned. He said that in verse 16. That when Jesus shows up in Galilee, it's like all these people, you know, Matthew kind of says it's, it, they're dwelling in darkness, those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has showed up. Jesus. And he's got something to say to them. 
The kingdom is here. Are you ready? Have you, have you reoriented yourself? Have you repented? Have you turned? Are you aware of what's going on? Well, the question that we have today is, do we see it? Do, do you see it? You know, about 400 years before Jesus, there, there was a Greek philosopher uh, who was trying to figure out the meaning of life. I mean, all, all the Greek philosophers were trying to figure out the meaning of life. Uh, but this one's name was, was Plato. And you've probably heard of, of Plato. And as he was, you know, one of his efforts to try to sort out why is the world the way it is? Why are things so convoluted? Why are things so uh, complicated? Why are they so messed up? He came up with an illustration that's often referred to as Plato's cave. And it's in one of his books called The Republic, book seven. And in this illustration, um, we got a, 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 a rendering of it here. Uh, but the, the basic idea is that he says it, it, that, that the, the book, The Republic, is a discussion. So it's kind of clunky. Um, but it's basically this, this uh, illustration is kind of painted this way. W what if there were, were people who, from, from, the, from the day they were born, were chained in a cave? And that's on the bottom left here. They are chained in a cave. And they are in the dark. And they cannot move. They can't even turn their head. They are stuck in the dark but they can see the wall in front of them. And what their experience of the world is, is that there is this source of light back here, and then there are these images or these forms that rise up, and the light then casts a shadow on the wall in front of these, these prisoners. And so as all the prisoners ever experience in their whole life, it's just shadows. So, you know, there's like a, 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 a bird there or whatever. They, they, they're not actually experiencing a real bird. They're experiencing a shadow. They're experiencing a, this, this distortion, this, 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 this false thing. It's representing a bird, but they've never seen a bird. And they have no idea what a real bird is. And they're chained in this cave, and they have no ability to discern anything other then they think that what they see on the wall is what is real. They think that what they see on the wall, well, that's a bird. What's well, not a bird? That, that's a shadow. It's distorted. It's false. It's, it's, uh, it's partial at best. Then he goes on to say what it would happen if a cave dweller was actually able to escape. And they got out of that cave and they climbed up, and on the left side of that fire is a tunnel, and they, they climb up, and they get up into, into, the, into, like, into the real world. And the, the sun is blazing, and they get up there, and it, it is painful on their eyes. They are disoriented. They can't see anything, kind of like standing on this stage. Like, the lights are in your eyes, and you can't see anything, and it takes them forever. And, and finally, like, their eyes adjust, and they, like, see a bird, a real bird, and they see water, like real water, and they start to experience the world. What would that be like? He's, Plato says that the light would be blinding and disorienting. But once they adjusted the light, they would see things as they truly are. Then Plato says, what if that person that got out said, well, there's all these prisoners down there. None of them know. Like somebody needs to go tell them. If that person climbed back down into the cave... They would get back down to the prisoners, but there would be a problem. Now their eyes wouldn't be adjusted to the dark. 
And they would be trying to tell these prisoners, you got to get out of here. This isn't real. But they can't see because they're back in the dark. And Plato says, all of those prisoners are going to be so skeptical of the person who can actually see. They're not going to listen to him at all. They're actually going to conclude, oh man, if we ever get out of here, we're going to lose our sight. If we get out of here, we're actually going to go blind. And Plato says, isn't this, isn't this ironic or isn't that interesting? He says that the cave dwellers, the prisoners, they won't listen. In fact, they'll most likely mock the escapee and they'll call them blind. See, Plato's point is that on the one hand, the prisoners are stuck and they're hopeless. But on the other hand, the prisoners would be skeptical of any other explanation. And they would rather stay in the familiar darkness than risk the exposure to the light. You can read it for yourself and see if I'm telling you the truth. But that's my summary of Plato's, Plato's cave. Wouldn't you agree Plato was onto something? Plato had something going on in his head here that actually correlates with what the Bible has to say. You know, the Bible tells us that our natural condition is darkness. That what happened to God's good creation in Genesis chapter 3 is that sin came flooding into the world and that sin separated us from God and it basically turned the lights off. It, it, it's distorted the good, beautiful light of the presence of God. And it's broken our world and it's created an environment which where everything is distorted. It makes this a, a dark prison where we watch shadows on the wall, mere shadows of what God has intended the world to be, shadows that, that make us afraid, shadows that lie to us, shadows that sow division and distrust. And Plato was right. We really, really need to get out of that cave. Man, do we need to get out of that cave, but how? How could we do it? We needed help from the outside. And the kind of help that we need is pretty significant because to get out of the cave, it wasn't enough for God to just call us out of the cave. God gave his word to the nation of Israel. God gave his commands. God gave all those words, written words, and it wasn't enough. No, we need more help than that. We needed someone to actually join us in the darkness we needed someone who knew the way out of the darkness. All of the advice, all of the commands, what we realized is that humans, it was, it, that those resources couldn't get it done. We actually needed someone to come in there and grab us by the hand and, and, and pick us up and carry us out. And boy, do we have good news. The world's true king was actually born in Plato's cave. He was born in the darkness. He was born in our cave. The Bible refers to him as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came into the cave, came into the dark. King Jesus, he came into the cave, but he won't stay in the cave. That's not the plan. Je Jesus was born in a cave, but he came to lead us out of the cave, out of our chains, away from the shadows, and into the light of God's love. You know, the Bible is telling us that Jesus is both the rescuer and the light himself. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So the, the Bible is telling us that Jesus is two things. He is both the one that comes in there to get us, and he's the light that we so desperately need to see. 
And as Matthew is unfolding the story of Jesus, as Jesus goes public in the middle of chapter 4, he associates Jesus with a light that has dawned, that has shined into the darkness, into these nations, and they are having the opportunity to see for the first time. They're having the opportunity to have the rescuer walking among them, ready to carry them out. You want to be part of that rescue? Man, the message of the gospel is that rescue is only found in and through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in 1 Peter, and it says that Jesus Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus came here to bring us to God. You know, the message of the gospel is not the message of how we find God. The message of the gospel is how God came to find us and to carry us out of the cave of darkness, out of the shadow of death, into the light of Jesus himself. If you want to be part of that rescue, man, here in verse, you know, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus is starting to declare this message. And the message is this. You have to give up your self-salvation projects. You have to give up your plan. You have to give up your way of seeing the world. You have to give up your way of rescuing yourself. That's what the word repent means. It means question yourself. Doubt your doubts. Look at what your opinions are. Look at what your priorities are. And are you willing to submit them to the God of heaven, to the true light? Our direct rebellion, our indirect rebellion. You know, if you think of this illustration that Plato gave us of being chained up in a, in a, in a cave, you know, sometimes like we, we know the chains that, that hold us back. And sometimes I don't think we have the slightest idea of the chains that hold us back because we don't think they're chains at all. We, we don't think they're problems. That's what we want. And Jesus is coming to tell us that what we want is often not the right thing. That Jesus offers a better picture, a better future, a heart that goes from dead to alive. One who can actually rescue us from sin and all the consequences of sin. So you have to give up on your self-salvation project and instead believe the good news that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the rescuer, the king, the one who is mighty to save. Now, before I close, I just want to say this. You might be saying, okay, well, that was all 2,000 years ago. You know, where are we now? So, you know, Matthew is referring to Isaiah's prophecy. I mean, these things are all quite, quite far back in the historical timeline. What about right now? What about 2023? Where are we now? Well, a lot of Bible scholars love to use this language that we are in a window in this little space that they refer to as already, not yet. Already, not yet. That when Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago and he started to proclaim, repent, the kingdom is at hand, Jesus was saying, I'm the king and my kingdom has arrived here in ways that in more intensity than it ever has before. Through words and deeds, the kingdom is, is showing up here with significance. And so the kingdom is already here. And yet, Jesus, after he rises from the dead and spends a few weeks with his followers, Jesus goes back to the Father. He leaves. And I don't know about you, but the last 2,000 years have shown a lot of evidence that the world is still pretty broken. I mean, the last 48 hours have shown 
that the world is pretty broken. Things like tornadoes that come out of nowhere and kill dozens of people. Poverty, global war, sickness, death. All of these things are still part of our story here. So the kingdom is already here as Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago, but it is not yet here in full. Already, but not yet. Uh, There's an illustration of just envision this scenario, and there's been scenarios like this throughout history. But in in Rome, for example, uh, there were occasions where the, the battle for the next emperor, the next ruler of Rome, would happen on a faraway field between two fighting generals. And whoever wins that battle is going to be the next emperor of Rome. And so they're in a far off place and they're in a battle and one of them wins. And when that, when that general wins, he is now the new emperor of Rome. And a messenger of his races all the way back to Rome. And he runs through the city of Rome and says, my general has won. My general has won. He's the next emperor and he's on his way back. Prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves because when he arrives, if you have, it will go well for you. And if you haven't, it will not go well for you. You see, it's factual. That messenger is racing back to Rome to tell them a fact. There is a king who is on his way to set up his kingdom. Adjust your life. Respond to this good news. It's something that is of eternal consequence. And that's the message of the Bible, is that Jesus won. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he won the battle. He is the ultimate king. He is the one true king. And the message that we have been given is that he's on his way back. When's he getting here? We don't know. But when he arrives, if you have aligned your life with him, it will go well for you. And if you haven't, it will not go well for you. Either we believe Jesus and follow him out of the shadows of fear, out of the shadows of the cave, into the light of love, or we sit in our chains and we watch the shadows on the wall, apart from God, apart from his light, apart from his love. And the good news that Jesus is going to unpack in these future chapters in the book of Matthew, this this is the message. Prepare yourselves because this kingdom is on the way. It's here in part. It's not yet here in full. Prepare yourself. Now, as we come to the table, have you seen that light? Have you seen the light of Jesus that shone in Galilee 2,000 years ago? Has that light shone on your heart? If you have, then this meal, this bread and this cup, it's for you. This is a meal for Christians. It's for those who have put their hope in Jesus. If you haven't, the good news is that that light is still shining and that light is shining right now. And the invitation is as open to you as it has been to anyone. Turn, see it, realize that that light is is a person. Recognize that he is your one true hope to be rescued from, from from the slavery of the cave, from the prison of sin, from separation from God. Turn to him, trust him, and let him rescue out of the darkness. This is the good news of the gospel. And this bread represents the body of Christ broken for you. This juice represents his blood spilled for you. This is the work that Jesus did on our behalf to rescue us from the cave and bring us to God. Come and eat. Come and eat with a heart full of joy. If our servers will please come, let's pray. 
God, thank you for this good news of a Jesus, of a, of a Messiah, of a Savior who came, but came into the dark, came to the fringes, came to the cave, came to the broken, came to the poor, came to the needy, came to the people who admit they can't get it done. And he stands there as the one true rescuer, offering the light of the world, the good news of the gospel, the rescue that our souls have been longing for our whole lives. God, we recognize that sin, has, it, it wreaks, it's wreaked havoc. Man, it's wreaked havoc in my life, on the face of this earth. We thank you that there's a rescue from that. We thank you that there's a light that shines that makes all the difference. We thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.